Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Hello, welcome to a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan, this is where we search out all the science that has been lurking around the universe. Maybe it's gone uncovered. Until now, we've got it all this week. It's a best of, a best of 2021 this week as well. Uh, We'll look back at the very best things that we've featured on the show over the last 12 months. It's been a strange year but one that we've managed to cram full of science with your help. Thank you for listening, for following, for finding, for sharing, for downloading us. My name's Dan. This week, we've got astronauts. But what do you miss most? Uh, I think the two main things that um, I miss, I think most astronauts miss, is the view of Earth, because there's nowhere else like it. Doctors. If you think brains are a bit squidgy and disgusting, if you unfolded your brain, it would be the size of your pillow. Again, please don't, please don't do that. I don't want complaints about all messed up duvets and things. And prime ministers on the way. They've got to stop using cars with petrol or diesel. They've got to stop digging uh and burning coal. First, let's catch up with one of our favourite geniuses. Uh, His name is Sir Sidney McSprocket. He is a Scottish inventor and he's always telling us about other inventors, inventors that have come up with things that have changed the world. This week, it's all about some unusual inventions from R.W. Savage and Lawrence Kemble Cook. Sir Sidney McSprocket's Great British Minds. Oh, hello, Sir Sidney McSprocket here. Now, I've been told many a time that my inventions are, well, somewhat odd. I'll admit that the Alsatian vibration station never really caught on. Caught fire, yes. But you know, I don't mind a bit. When you think about some of our greatest inventors, creators and designers, well, they didn't mind people thinking their adventures were a little crazy or weird or maybe silly. Being able to play with an idea and have fun with it can make all sorts of things happen. After all, why should only children get to play? Oh, good. There's just enough time before tea. Take the Great Exhibition of 1851. It was a celebration in Victorian times of the greatest innovations from Britain and some other places in the world. Some of the most weird and wonderful contraptions were on show. And not many were as um, unique as the silent alarm bed. Invented by R.W. Savage, a mechanism connected to an alarm clock would tip a sleeping person out of bed at a time of their choosing, perhaps even into a bath of cold water. Sounds like something from (laughs) Wallace and Gromit, doesn't it? But, however silly the idea sounds, the demonstration drew many visitors, and I imagine he even had a few orders. After all, It is quite the job to get going of a morning, I find. And here's a 21st century mind I'd like to introduce you to. Someone else who was interested in keeping things moving and came up with another quite unique idea. Pavement power! Yes, I did say pavement power. Words seldom heard together, I'll grant you. How on earth can a boring old pavement generate power? Can you imagine? Well, someone did, and got creating and invented PaveGen. Let's meet the inventor, Lawrence Kemble Cook. PaveGen is a smart flooring system which harnesses the kinetic power of people's footsteps and converts it into green energy. Kinetic power just means the power generated by movement. To date, PaveGen has captured over half a billion footsteps, 
Oh, that's a lot of electricity. So, how does it work? It sounds like magic, doesn't it? Well, as people step on the top surface, their weight causes generators underneath the tiles to rotate, creating electricity power via something called electromagnetic induction, which is a way that magnets can generate electricity. Pave-gen walkways can have sensors built into their tiles that capture and analyse data, such as the number of steps and energy created, which can help power street or office lights, all without having to burn any fossil fuels, which are harmful for the environment. And the more steps you take, the more electricity there will be. So you'll be in better shape as well. So you can see, playing with ideas, however crazy they might seem, is something many great minds have in common. If you like experimenting and having fun, then perhaps you'll be a great mind too. Oh golly, tea time already. I better go. My cheese weighed teas made is serving up a lovely cup of tea and a cheese biscuit to go with it. What could be nicer? Tatty bye for now. Sir Sidney McSprockett's Great British Minds. With support from the Royal Commission 1851. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash McSprockett. A few months ago, we had the COP26 climate meeting. Leaders from all around the world got together to talk about what they were going to do to try and rescue the planet, change climate for the better, to reduce temperatures and to reduce emissions. And one of those leaders came on the show to tell us what happened. Let's hear from the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Prime Minister, thank you so much for for coming on Fun Kids. I hear you're quite a busy man. Yeah, well, yes, I am these days, yes. Uh, so it's our listeners who are going to live with the decisions that you've made yes. over the last week or so. Uh, how, how, how good is the deal that you've made? How well, happy can we Dan, be? Well, that's the question. It, it, the, the answer is, it's potentially very good. Uh, it, it might be quite good, but it could be pretty hopeless. And it depends it depends on how the countries that signed up to it actually deliver and they've got to make good their promises they've got to they've got to they've got to stop using cars with petrol or diesel they've got to stop digging uh and burning coal and they've got to start using alternative cleaner forms of energy and planting zillions more trees so that's what's going to happen They've all made some promises, but the UK, us, we're going to hold them to those promises. We're going to keep keep uh, chivying away. Uh, what changes have you made at home uh, in, in your daily life to be more green like so many of our listeners? Well, I, <clears throat> before I became prime minister, I used to cycle everywhere. That was my, that was my big contribution. I, I literally, I, when I was, I was mayor of London for about eight years, and I, I never, it was wonderful. I never had any kind of... Um, police car that took me around or any of the stuff I have to have nowadays and nobody ever shouted at me it was wonderful <laughs> I cycled everywhere uh, just some quick questions from our listeners uh, this is from Imogen well done the use of car instead you can use solar panels in everyone's house to make renewable heating systems well do you know what Imogen that is almost what we did I mean we didn't get there in the end but what we said was that um, for the first time, 190 countries said they were going to phase it down. Now, what on earth phase down means, uh, you may ask, Imogen, but it, I think what it basically means is they're going to start to get rid of it. And that's a massive thing for the world to commit to. We've depended, the world's depended on coal for hundreds of years. And there are countries that absolutely need coal to, to power their electricity stations to keep warm uh, for all sorts of things. And so for them to say this is a big, big step and it's very encouraging. You, you can't tell countries that are, that are very poor, uh, where standard of living is very low, uh, sorry, folks, you can't use coal anymore, uh, and they've just got to shiver and, and starve. Uh, you've, got to do it, you've got to do it in a sensible way. And what the UK wants to do is help them to adopt 
cleaner technology like wind or solar or hydrogen or uh, maybe even nuclear power if, if they if they want to do that uh, th- that's pretty controversial uh, there are there are ways of of producing energy that are very clean uh, this one is from Zika fantastically named Zika if technology is making climate change worse how can it make it better brilliant question Zika you're going to the heart of the of the debate because you see there are lots of people who who basically think the problem is is humanity and that um, we've we've become far too uh, industrialized and and that we have all these machines and that technology is, is in itself wrong and evil and destructive this is a very ancient belief that pro- that progress is 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 a disaster and that we should somehow revert to a lots of green people lots of uh, environmentalists are secretly hoping to return to a kind of pastoral idyll where we all run around you know uh wearing um you know hand knitted clothes and that sort of thing and i'm not against that that's fantastic they could that could but but uh, you know smelling faintly of wood smoke uh, i'm all in favor of of that kind of thing but uh, in the end it's not what people want so what you have to do is use technology you have to use uh, inventions to fix it and we can and we have the technology as they used to say in the uh, on the tv when i was a kid uh, we can we can fix this thing but some of this technology is very expensive and you have to help people to do it this year we also managed to go up into space kind of we caught up with the astronaut tim peak he was on he's got a brand new book out and he managed to answer some of your questions as well it's the fun kids science weekly now we've got a proper space superhero on the show uh, he's been with us before uh, he's actually been up there astronaut tim p come on i mean he spent six months on board the international space station traveled around the world what three thousand times clocking up millions of miles as he did it and he's taken everything that he learned all about the universe and he's stuck it in a book it's called swarm rising it's all about danny and jamila and the aliens who are out to get them uh tim thank you so much for for being there how are you hello dan great thanks great to be on fun kids now what do you I don't want to start this on a downer, Tim, but I'm just wondering, what do you miss most about being in space? I mean, we've been trapped inside for about a year, so <laughs> there might be some similarities there. But what do you miss most? Uh, I think that the two main things that um, I miss, I think most astronauts miss is the view of Earth, because there's nowhere else like it, uh, that you can get this incredible view of our planet. And and also the feeling of weightlessness, which is really, really cool. It's very unique. It's lots of fun. It just makes everything you do slightly different. So I think those two things are brilliant and, and I miss them a lot. Talking about the view, Tim, I've heard some astronauts say that it, it makes you think about your life a lot differently and about your place in the world. What did you find when you were up there looking down on this tiny marble of a planet that you were hovering miles above? It does. You can't help about thinking about things differently. I mean, every day on Earth, we go about our daily lives and we see nature around us, greenery, you know, uh, urban areas. We look up, we see a blue sky or a cloudy sky. We don't actually appreciate that we are on a rocky planet orbiting around a sun. You know, we don't, that's not the first thing you think of when you step outside your door. Uh, but from space, it is all you see. It's like, oh my goodness, mate, that's just a black abyss of the universe. And there's that rocky planet. Um, and, you know, you just see this completely different perspective. Uh, and so that's the most amazing thing is it just gives you that fresh appreciation of where we are in the solar system. One of the things I know I love, and I know a lot of listeners love, is having a bit of free time in the day. I'm wondering about you being up on the International Space Station. How much time did you just have to just chill and do what you want or were you pretty busy right the way through constant experiments constant spacewalks how busy were you tim 
It is it is busy. We're there to work hard. Um, you have to kind of snatch those moments when you can. So if you've been scheduled, you know, 20 minutes to do something, you manage to do it in 15 minutes, you've just bought yourself a quick five minutes to go to the cupola, you know, take some photographs, have a look of Earth. Uh, but there's constantly things to do. At the weekends, we get a bit more time to ourselves. We do some education programs. We clean the space station. We can call friends and family. But Monday through Friday, it's pretty much flat out. How long did it take you to get used to the fact that you were sleeping inside a chunk of metal that was hovering through space? I think, you know, you never really get used to it. Um, but I, I, I started getting good night's sleep after about two weeks. It takes your body about two weeks to be able to fall asleep in weightlessness because it's really unusual when you don't put your head on a pillow or lie down it's a really weird uh, way to sleep and so your body doesn't like it but once you get used to it you have a great night's sleep and you wake up after just six hours that's plenty of rest it's such good quality but you never really get used to the fact that you're floating in a space station how do you get comfy if you're not lying down if you've got nothing to put your head on what you just float like you just don't need it you just float I mean, in fact, I kind of put my hands, my arms inside the sleeping bag and zip them up so that they were kind of across my chest. Because if you don't secure your arms in some way, they'll just float around and maybe knock you in the head and wake yourself up in the middle of the night. So it it feels more secure just by strapping yourself into a sleeping bag. Now, the last time we spoke and you came on the show, you told me that there were plans to make the moon a service station en route to Mars. And... I don't think I've, there's no one I've met that I haven't mentioned that to. Uh, how are we getting on with that, with that quest, Tim? We're doing a pretty good job. In fact, this year, later this year, we hope to launch SLS, which is the huge rocket. This is larger than the Saturn V that took the Apollo cruise to the moon. So it's going to have its maiden voyage this year. Um, And then the next mission, the second mission, will be carrying crew, four crew members uh, around the moon uh, and then bring them back. And then the third mission, which is scheduled for 2024, maybe 2025, uh, is going to have the surface landing. So two astronauts going down to the surface once again, which is going to be fantastic. So if we get to go back to the moon, is your hand first up? You're the one that wants to be there. Is that doable? Uh, my hand is certainly firmly up up there. I know there's fierce competition from my other European classmates, but my hand is firmly up there. We'll see what happens. Uh, now, you've got a new book out. Uh, it's a fiction book. It's called Swarm Rising. What was it about your trip in space and everything that you know about the universe that inspired you to write a story? Uh, You know, there's been a lot of stories about aliens. There's been a lot of movies about aliens. But when you really think seriously about where are they and how might they get here? One thing I realized when I was out in space is just the vastness of the universe. There is likely to be civilized, intelligent life all over the universe. Will it ever get here, though, if we can't travel faster than the speed of light? And then I thought, well, what if it can travel at the speed of light? Why can't intelligence be a radio signal traveling to us as digital information? And you know, these days, we play simulation games, computers, artificial intelligence is becoming all around us. Uh, It's possibly where humanity is going. So I thought, yeah, let's have some aliens arrive on planet Earth, but they arrive in a radio signal as digital intelligence. And then the story kind of erupts from there. So I've had a lot of fun writing it with Steve Cole, who is a brilliant children's author. He's worked on Doctor Who, and he's got some great ideas of his own as well. So we've had great fun. Now, uh, Tim, I've got some questions from listeners, if that's okay, stuff that they'd like to ask an astronaut. Can I fire some at you? Of course, let's fire away. Uh, This is from Tia, who is nine, uh, who wants to know, how much do you have to actually do to get back down to Earth? When you sit in that module at the end, is it just a case of aiming and going forward? How, How much say do you have over where you land? Well, do you know what? Coming back to Earth, we have a lot more say and we have a lot more to do. It's launching into space that we don't have a huge amount to do. I mean, literally, the rocket goes off. And if everything goes well, we don't touch anything until the engines cut out and we're hopefully safely in space. But coming back down, there's a lot to do. We have to break we have to slow down and that burn that engine burn has to be really spot on accurate so starting the engine stopping the engine making sure that we break uh, enough to come into earth's atmosphere not too much we're coming too steep not too little or else we'll go back out into space again and then the spacecraft has to separate into three parts then the parachutes have to open successfully seats have to jockey their position around there's a lot going on with re-entry it's a it's a brilliant roller coaster ride but we've got a lot to do 
this one is from Louise, who is eight years old. Thank you, Louise. Why do astronauts get weaker when they're up in space? Well, the reason we get weaker is because our body is doing a brilliant, brilliant job of trying to adapt to a new environment. It says, hey, I'm just not working hard. I don't need these bones. I don't need these muscles because of weightlessness. And so our body tries to adapt. And that's why we get weaker. Um, so we have to try and stop that from happening because we're going to come back to a gravity environment. Uh, but if we left our body and did nothing at all, it would turn itself into the perfect human form for weightlessness. It's pretty incredible. And then Neve follows up on that. She's also eight. She says, when you get back down on Earth again, how long does it take you to adjust so you can walk normally, so you can use your muscles again in stronger gravity? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and, you know, it's a, it varies because it takes just a couple of days before we feel confident walking again. We've got our balance okay, you know, we feel all right. Um, but then you go to pick things up and you realize that your core strength is just not quite there because we, it's very hard to exercise your stomach muscles and your lower back muscles. That takes probably about a month to really fully build those back up. And our bones actually take at least six months to recover, if not a year. So it's a gradual process. Uh, Luke, who is nine, says loads of people want to be an astronaut. Not many get the chance. What makes the lucky few stand out? I think the things that the space agencies are really looking for are people who are able to be team players that can communicate well, um, that can work in international teams, that don't mind traveling. All these little things that go to make up an astronaut in terms, as well as all those skills that they've tested, like concentration and spatial awareness and memory retention, etc. But it comes down a lot of it to your personality and character and how you come across in interviews in the final stages um, because any one of you know a dozen people could do the job but they need to just pick three or four and so it's the small things uh, about your personality and character which is why I think it's so important when you're younger to get out get involved whether it's scouts whether it's cadets guides you know whatever it is that you want to do Duke of Edinburgh award schemes things that kind of build those interpersonal skills are so important for life. Uh, last question from a listener. This is from Marley, who's 10. And I love this. It's, it's all about coming back to Earth. Uh, Marley says, when, when you go scuba diving, if you come up too quickly, you get a little bit ill. You get the bends. Does anything happen like that when you come back from space, if it all happens too quickly? Uh, that's a brilliant, brilliant question. Um, you know what? It doesn't happen when we come back from space because if everything goes well, the, our pressure doesn't change. The pressure on the space station is one atmosphere, same as on Earth. Inside the capsule, it's one atmosphere. So no pressure change. The place where we have to be really careful is coming inside from a spacewalk because when we do a spacewalk, we go to a really low pressure inside our suits so that we can bend our arms or we can work outside in the vacuum of space. And that's very much like diving so when you come back in from that really low pressure environment where nitrogen can start to even you know start to form bubbles in our blood we have to be really really careful when we do spacewalks going into them and coming back out of them uh, lastly and this is just me because there's a lot of talk about billionaires going into space at the moment jeff bezos elon musk sir richard branson uh, as someone that's been there yourself that's part of the European Space Agency, hopefully going back to the moon at some point. How do you feel about, about these people spending loads of their own money to get up to space? Well, I think it's, it's brilliant what's happening because, you know, these commercial companies are going to be critical to our, our exploration of the moon to Mars and beyond. Uh, and it's a case of using other people's resources. So SpaceX, for example, are not only are they flying crew to the space station right now and providing cargo, they're going to be providing a, a lander system, a lunar lander system, and their, their large rocket's going to be carrying elements of the exploration program, as might Blue Origin. So these companies, you know, that participating in this program are going to make deep space exploration possible. So I think what they're doing is, is fantastic. And also, it is giving more you know, opportunity for more people to get into space. And at the moment, whilst that's people who've got lots of money, you know, in the early days of flying, it was only people who had lots of money that could afford to fly across the Atlantic. Whereas now, you know, there's many, many people who could afford a ticket to a, for a holiday in Florida, for example. So who knows? In the future, many, many more people might be able to afford a ticket to space. Amazing. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us. The brand new book is Swarm Rising um, and it's fantastic. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
Thanks very much. Great talking to you. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Also this year, we had a good look inside the body with the Dr... Adam Kay. He's a writer. He's a a doctor. He knows all about medicine. He knows all about what's going on inside. He's got a book out. It's called Kay's Anatomy. Also, there's one called Kay's Marvelous Medicine. And he came on the show to answer some of your strange body questions. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, Adam Kay is our guest this week. He used to be a doctor. Then he wrote a book about being a doctor. It sold about a billion copies all around the world, and he's got a new one out that I think you'll love. It's called Kay's Anatomy. It's a complete and completely disgusting guide to the human body. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Now, listen, it's a title that promises a lot. What is the most disgusting thing that you know about the human body? Oh, where do I start? I mean, it depends what you find disgusting. If you find blood disgusting, then uh, every day your heart pumps 7,000 litres of the stuff. And 7,000 litres is enough to fill 90 pretty disgusting baths. So actually probably don't uh, don't do that. Um, it's pretty disgusting if you find out that you in the past have drunk your own wee. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't that lemonade that tasted a bit weird last week. It was uh, actually uh, when you were a baby, when you were inside your mum, the uh, the the water you drank was the same as the wee that you uh, weed out. So, I mean, that's slightly disgusting. If you think brains are a bit squidgy and disgusting, if you unfolded your brain, it would be the size of your pillow. Again, please don't, please don't do that. I don't want complaints about all messed up duvets and things. Um, the the spit that you produce in a single day would fill two cans of Coke. The longest fart ever recorded was three minutes. I mean, there's a lot of disgusting stuff going on in the air, let's be honest. Now, um, a few things I need to pick up on from that. The, the, a long fart, what would make in your uh, medical experience, what would make a fart go for three minutes? Uh, you'd, you'd have to wonder about what the record holder uh, had been eating at the time, wouldn't you? Because um, a lot of things increase the amount uh, you fart. Um, all it is, is air that's inside your intestines. And in fact, swallowing air is one of the big things that does that. So actually fizzy drinks or something that's got air in it. Also, if you like suck on your pen lid or something, that puts lots of air inside. And also, I'm sure everyone realizes there are certain foods uh, that, that increase your fart volume and quantity and uh, things like beans and vegetables and meat, all sorts of things. And that's because um, when your intestines, when your gut is digesting it to get all the good stuff out, um, certain types of food, um, the um, bacteria, the little bugs that are hanging around in your gut. Oh, by the way, um, your poo is alive over half of your poo is made up of bacteria that are alive and it don't don't panic too much. Anyway, but some of these bacteria produce a bit of air and that air turns into fart. So I suspect the bloke who farted for three minutes probably had just eaten about 400 tonnes of baked beans, maybe. <laughs> it makes you think, if he's a record breaker, that he might be brilliantly well practiced at this it's it's a bit of a fuss getting a record you've got to get someone down record the thing maybe this guy has been practicing which means i don't know can he control his farts is that possible yeah that's 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 perfectly possible and in fact if you look back through history there were people who made their living through professionally farting Hundreds of years ago, um, kings and queens in, uh, in all sorts of countries would employ all sorts of professional jesters and entertainers. And uh, there was one in England who was known as Roland the Farter. And uh, his job was just to uh, do amusing and amazing farts. And um, he, was, he was so popular with the king at the time that when he retired from his farting job, they gave him an enormous house in the country. <laughs> I tell you, my dad has been born in the wrong century. He would have made a killing back then. 
Um, now, just tell us a bit more about the book. So uh, how does it look? What's the form? How did you go about researching everything that's disgusting inside your body and then making it brilliantly readable for us? Well, I worked as a doctor and so I got, I had to sit in a boring lecture theatre for six years and be told all of these facts. And the, and the facts that mostly stayed with me were the slightly disgusting ones. And I've always thought that the body is absolutely fascinating. And I know not everyone thinks the body is fascinating, but that's only because they don't realise quite how amazing some of this stuff is. And I thought I could write down everything I know about the body and other people might also also find this stuff interesting. Um, things like um, the amount of skin that you shed in a lifetime would fill a wheelbarrow. That's, uh, or the fact that you blink for one month every year, or that your nose can tell the difference between a trillion different smells and um maybe maybe your dad's farts are the very worst of that trillion oh i tell you what adam 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 they are they are horrendous listen it's made me think of a question the fart question what's the kind of the biological difference between a barp and a fart i know they come out of different ends but what's happening inside your body which determines where it's going to come out of it's basically as simple as uh as where the air gets produced, top half up as a burp, bottom half down as a fart. So anything that's in your stomach, if your stomach's all a bit stretched with all of this air that's in it, you've just sort of, you've just chugged 10 pints of Coke and then uh, it's suddenly out the top. That would make a nice slogan, I think. Top half burp, bottom half fart. Yep. Uh, now, listen, thank you so much for coming on. When we get proper experts, uh, we like to get questions from our listeners and just chuck them at you and see what happens. If you've got something, by the way, leave it as a review for the Fun Kids Science Weekly over on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Finn has done that. Who wants to know, Adam, why do we get headaches and migraines? What's going on there? Right. Annoying, aren't they? I mean, there's lots of different things that cause uh, headaches, things like stress. Uh, when you've had a nasty old day and school's been rubbish or the you know, traffic's been awful, the muscles in your head can tighten up. If you're dehydrated, like you've not had enough to drink, if you've been listening to loud music, if you're tired, if you've been on a long car journey. Um, oh, and also there's a fun reason. Um, if you've had a load of ice cream uh, really quickly, you get brain freeze, uh, which you'll be pleased to hear doesn't actually mean that your brain is freezing. Um, what's happened there is nerves, which are these little uh, wires that send messages all around your body, have got confused. And instead of sending a signal to your brain saying, this is cold, it gets muddled up and goes, ah, this is painful. And that's, uh, and that's, uh, that's a brain freeze. And while I've got you, um, there is one serious type of, of headache that I think everyone should know about, which is called meningitis. And it's not very common. And now we can have vaccinations that stop you getting the most serious types. But this is a headache that also gives you a rash or also gives you a stiff neck. And if you've got a headache with a rash or a stiff neck, that's something to always chat to an adult about. Uh, yeah, brilliant. Um, of, of course, we need to keep that in mind. So is it a headache at times? Is it the muscles getting tired and, and squeezing? Is, is that what's making us a bit pained when we don't have enough water? Yeah, there are all sorts of, all sorts of things uh, that can make the brain hurt. Uh, weirdly, um, the brain itself, the squidgy grey and white stuff, doesn't actually feel pain itself. So when you're feeling pain of a headache, it's to do with muscles or or blood vessels or, or and the stuff around the head. So you can do an operation on someone when they're awake on their brain and it doesn't hurt because the brain itself, even though it's in charge of you know all the pain when you stub your toe or whatever, doesn't feel pain itself. And um, once uh, a, a doctor was doing an operation on uh, on someone and they played the violin whilst they were operating uh, on this person's brain. So I really hope that uh, patient was very good at the violin because otherwise that would have been really off-putting for the doctors. Uh, yeah, that's kind of creeping me out, the fact the brain can't feel pain itself. So thank you so much for that question, Finn. Uh, this one's from Lily. Uh, why do we throw up? So when we're ill, when we're feeling sick, 
why is one of our body's reaction to propel food and other stuff out of our mouth? Yeah, it's a very good question from Lily. And again, there's lots of reasons for it. So anything from like a bad headache to, you know, a high temperature, if you've just stepped off a roller coaster, if you've just read a particularly disgusting book, um, that all can make you throw up or vomit, to use the proper medical term. But the most common reason is because your stomach has detected something that shouldn't be in there. So like if your your stomach spots that you've uh, eaten some food that's covered in germs, it tells your brain to press the ejector seat. And so right at the bottom of the stomach, that all closes up and then your abs, so the muscles at the, the front uh, in front of your, uh, your stomach squeeze in and then suddenly your lunch is all over your, your jumper. Um, and that characteristic horrible smell uh, comes from uh, something called butyric acid. That's a good one. Remember butyric acid, because uh, that's a fact that I bet you that your parents and your teachers don't know. Um, so, and you can show off with that one or, or make them seem stupid, whichever you, you prefer. So the butyric acid um, gives it its smell. And interestingly, butyric acid is also found in lots of different cheeses. Uh, so if you've ever you know, sniffed some Parmesan and thought, that smells a bit like puke, you were right. It's exactly the same stuff. So when we, when we have to take a day off school, maybe, and you know, without getting too disgusting, when you've been sick for a while and you're still sick, nothing's coming up, but you still feel like you need to, wretch. what's happening in, what's our stomach detected there that makes you want to vomit? Um, it's, the, the muscle is just very um, sore, really. So like, you know, if you do loads of exercise, you know, sort of lifting your weights up as I know you do all the time, Dan, probably doing it now. Um, after you've done it, you know, lift it, lifted the, the, the weights a few times, your arms, your arms getting sore and sensitive and, uh, exactly the same happens in your stomach. It's, it's had a really rotten time with these germs in it. And it's anything you put down in there makes it sort of twitch and sort of, and want to get rid of anything that's in there. So it's, it's overreacting a bit. Ah, Lily, thank you so much for that. This one is from Ben, who uh, who wants to know, how do we talk? What's making the sounds? That's a very good question. Really, talking is just a slightly fancy version of uh, breathing out. So, you know, uh, obviously breathing involves your lungs, air goes in, air goes out. And as it's coming out, if you want to talk, um, it goes through a part of your, your windpipe um, uh, called your, your vocal cords. And the air whooshing past them makes them vibrate a bit like the strings on a violin or something. And so that just creates a sound. And if you want to make the sound more exciting than just a, then you have to wobble your tongue and move your lips around. And that turns the into specific special sound. So say you want to say the word bum, who wouldn't? So you press your lips together for the B, but, and then you put your lips in a bit of a circle for the uh, uh, and then closed again for an M sound, m, bum. <laughs> the, the I loved a deep dive through how you make the sound bum. That's amazing. It's crucial ben. information. <laughs> ben, that crucial was information. This is from uh, Josh. And this is important at the moment. Uh, we're always hearing about vaccines in the news. And if we do feel a little bit sick, maybe we have medicine that we might have in the drawer, paracetamol, ibuprofen, cowpole, that kind of thing. Josh wants to know, how do medicines make us better? That's a very good question. It's a very big question. I could write a really boring book about how medicines make us uh, make us better. Um, so, I mean, vaccines are very, very interesting because um, obviously um, vaccines are a brilliant invention. And what they do is they stop you getting a disease in the first place. And it's much better to never get it in the first place than try and treat it afterwards. And, and the idea behind vaccines is tricking your body to put up all of its defences, get all of its defences ready to deal with a, a, a special um, illness of any any kind. Because um, so, like obviously, COVID is the is, is the illness that we've been trying to prevent a lot at the moment. And it takes your body a bit of a while once you've got an infection to to develop all of its defences that it needs. And so, um, the idea behind this is you give the vaccine, and the body 
you don't get sick, but the body makes all its defenses. So if you are unlucky enough to get a bit of COVID, then hopefully your body can just thwack it away. And in terms of if you're not feeling so well, um, the way the medicines work depend on what's the matter. Um, so a lot of medicines are pills or, or liquids, and those you obviously swallow, and then the stomach breaks it down, which sends it right off to a place called the liver, usually, and the liver chucks the medicines into your bloodstream. And luckily, your blood goes everywhere, which means that um, it might be pain relief that it needs to send to your head or antibiotics to send off for a, an infection in your, you know, in your throat or in your little finger or whatever. So that's why you might sometimes wonder, why am I, why am I eating this tablet or drinking this liquid if it's got to go to my, to my little finger? And that's, and that's the answer. And, um, other common things, uh, lots of people have asthma and this is a sort of medicine where you take your inhaler, and you basically breathe it in. And that medicine acts directly onto the tubes inside your lungs. And it works to open them up. And, and sometimes people need injections. And uh, most common one uh, for that is probably for diabetes. If you've got diabetes, you might have it. Someone you know might have it. Um, it means that your body isn't making something called insulin. And your body needs some insulin. And so you replace it by putting it in yourself. Uh, amazing, amazing, amazing. Maisie is our last question. Who wants to know, how do we make more blood to stay alive? Hmm, that's very, staying alive is really important. And you're quite right that it involves having blood going around. Blood's made up of all sorts of different cells. There are uh, red blood cells and there are white blood cells and there are platelets. I don't know what color they are. Maybe green, green blood cells. Anyway, Okay, fine. It's, it's, they're not green, really. No, they're also a bit white, actually. So maybe that's why they didn't call them other white blood. Anyway, so anyway, all of these uh, blood cells have a certain life expectancy. So like red blood cells last for around four months. And um, obviously, your, your body agrees with Maisie that it's important to have uh, more blood to, so you can stay alive. And actually, blood comes from a slightly surprising place. Blood cells come from your bones, so um, you think of bones probably as sort of quite solid things, big lumps of white stuff. In the middle of your bones is a very squidgy bit, and that's called your bone marrow. And that's actually the bit that dogs find delicious. That's why dogs, uh, like my dog Pippin, uh, love to, to run around with a bone and chew, chew on that. So yes, your blood cells come from your bones. Very quickly, does the body have... A, a, a level where we need that amount of blood. So if something bad were to happen and we were to lose blood, if we give blood away and we need more, it, does the body instantly know I need to get to work? I need my bone marrows to start working, making that blood. Absolutely. It's a very, very clever setup your body's got. So um, you can actually lose quite a lot of blood before it becomes a big old emergency your body's got a little bit spare. Um, but as soon as you've lost some blood, um, your uh, a message goes out to your bones saying, hurry up, guys, we need to get some more baby blood cells. Um, and um, But obviously, some people um, end up um, needing a bit, of, a bit of a blood transfusion, uh, which means blood from somebody else, because you can lose so much blood that your body won't cope very well at all. And so... One of the most amazing things that adults can do, kids can't uh, do this because, I mean, kids aren't allowed to do loads of things, not allowed to drive cars, not allowed to uh, give blood. It's so unfair. Anyway, um, is uh, giving blood. So you go along to a place and uh, in return for a bit of a lie down for half an hour, and I think you get a biscuit as well, um, they put a, a tube in your arm and take and take um, a a, a pint of blood from you. And this means that if people have had serious operations or bad car accidents or something like that, um, then every hospital has got a load of spare blood to top you up in case your bone marrow needs a, a bit of a head start. And you also get a sticker, I think, and everyone loves a sticker, Adam. Oh yeah. I had my vaccine today and I got a sticker and I was delighted. Amazing. Well, thank you so much on, on Vaccine Day to chat to us, the brand new book, Kay's Anatomy. Uh, it's out right now. And listen, you've had, what, just over 10 minutes of incredible, uh, amazingly funny explanation. Imagine a whole book filled with that. You need to get a copy. It's Kay's Anatomy. It's out now by Adam Kay. Thank you so much for joining us, Adam. Thank you for having me. 
It's time to catch up with one of our favourite superheroes now. Uh, her name is Karina. She's got an alter ego called K-Mystery and they learn all about chemistry together and we join them on this adventure. Uh, this week, it, it's all about green energy and green cars and helping Karina's dad getting a new motor that's not going to harm the planet too much. K-Mystery. Chemistry and climate. So dad's been doing some more research into a new car. He's keen that it causes less harm to the environment than our old petrol one. Thing is, it turns out electric cars aren't the only contender. Apparently, cars can also run on hydrogen. I mean, won't they float away? Hi, Karina. Are you thinking of helium? Oh, hey, chemistry. Actually, this might be just the sort of thing a chemistry superhero alter ego can help me get to grips with. Well, I'm on it like a car got it. And talking of cars... Your dad's right to consider making the switch. Road vehicles are currently the UK's largest contributor to greenhouse gases. And it doesn't seem to be changing. Unlike industry and energy production, where they're decreasing their emissions, did you know that a whopping 95% of transport emissions comes from cars, vans, coaches and HGVs, whilst rail only contributes around 2%. Both electric and hydrogen-powered cars would be better for the environment. Electric cars create no emissions, whilst hydrogen emits just water. No other chemicals at all. Hang on. What about biofuels? Aren't they another type of cleaner energy? You know, fuel made from broken-down organic matter. Absolutely. But demand for biofuels is focused on food production. They also use a lot of water, land and fertilisers. So we won't be seeing a mass of biofuel cars anytime soon. But electric cars are becoming a more common sight on our roads. So here's the rundown. Electric cars are efficient users of energy. An increasing number of manufacturers are making more and more electric vehicles. In all shapes and sizes. Added to which... There are more charging points than ever. You can even get a charging point at your home. Although buying a new electric car might not be cheap, charging your battery works out much cheaper than filling your tank with petrol. But on the downside, batteries eventually die and need replacing. Batteries are made using rare elements. These often come from places where they may not be mined responsibly and won't be available forever. And also, if you need more oomph to power a large lorry or even a train or a boat, you'd need a lot of batteries which just adds weight. And lorries aren't allowed to exceed certain weights on our roads. All right, so what about hydrogen? Well, there's two ways to make hydrogen for fuel. One is natural gas formation. The other is known as electrolysis. That's a way to create hydrogen using electricity and water. The exciting thing is that the electrolysis method is zero emissions. And just about unlimited. So it's as green as you can get, especially if the electricity was to come from wind or solar sources. It's also easier and quicker to fill up your tank than it is to charge an electric battery. Sounds perfect. Any downsides? Well, currently you'd find it hard to find a hydrogen pump to fill up on as the technology is still quite new. And it's not much cheaper than using petrol or diesel so there's not as many savings to be made. In its production, it also creates a greenhouse gas called methane. And so whilst better than fossil fuels, it's not as green as it could be. And whilst it's being used for buses, lorries and trains, the additional fuel needed for longer distances will still be very bulky. And it's not just road transport, right? Other vehicles can be powered this way. Absolutely! Electric power is increasingly being used for a variety of modes of transport, even planes. Airbus created the first all-electric aircraft in 2010. What about hydrogen? It's kind of the new kid on the block, isn't it? 
Even so, it's still got everyone excited. Alstom have made the world's first passenger train powered by hydrogen, called the Caradia Elint. This zero-emissions train also emits low noise levels due to the exhaust being only steam and condensed water. There are still challenges to be faced with things like storing enough power and the cost, but the future's looking bright. Amazing! But which to choose? Well, that's a question for your dad. It's like electric solves the problem with cars today, but hydrogen could perhaps solve the problem of renewable energy wherever it's used, from roads to factories to our homes. And we're back. Wow, thanks for the insight, chemistry. No problem. Always happy to help with a chemistry challenge. And online, you'll find a cool experiment where, with an adult's help, you can use electrolysis to make hydrogen at home. Why not check it out? Chemistry, Chemistry and Climate, with support from the Royal Society of Chemistry. Find out more and get hands-on with chemistry at funkidslive.com slash chemistry. Talking about things that can uh, cause climate change and potentially harm the planets... We hear about a lot of them, don't we? Things that cause emissions, aeroplanes, cars. One thing you might not have heard of before is uh, things that trees do in the forest. Tree farts. We heard all about that earlier on this year. I really love the chat. I think you need to hear it again. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly, and we hear a lot about climate change at the moment and how things harm the atmosphere. It turns out something strange is having a little impact too. Tree farts. As soon as I saw this, this is up our street, isn't it? So to find out more, we've got Melinda Martinez on. She's a wetland ecologist at the North Carolina State University over in Raleigh, and she joins us on the line. Melinda, thanks for being there. Thanks for having me. I love talking about tree parts <laughs> good good well you've come to the right place uh now listen let's get it out there what is a tree fart um so a tree fart is basically greenhouse gases that um are being emitted by trees so kind of like how in your own body whenever you fart you emit gases very similar to these same gases that are being emitted by um standing dead trees <laughs> Now, how are the how are the trees getting this gas in? We know that trees and plants take in carbon dioxide as part of photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. Why are these unwanted polluting gases coming in as well? So some of these greenhouse gases just occur naturally in wetlands. Um, and I guess first off, if people aren't familiar with what a wetland is, it's literally just a wet land. Um, an area that's constantly saturated or has standing water for long periods of time. And so because there's so much standing water, um, these gases occur naturally because the more standing water, the less oxygen can penetrate the soil. And so this creates this uh, perfect environment for these microbial communities to produce uh, methane specifically. And this is one of the greenhouse gases that I was looking at. Um, And it's actually one of the gases people produce also internally. Um, And so this, yeah, this happens in uh, in the soils. And so when the trees are still upright and uh, when they're standing dead trees, a lot of the water is flushed out of the tree. And so you have a lot of these open uh, cells, like a, a network of open cells that allow some of the greenhouse gases that are produced in the soils to travel up the standing dead trees and then out into the atmosphere. Uh, you say out into the atmosphere with a human fart. We we know we know how they are released <laughs> into the atmosphere. What about with a, with a tree fart? How does air? How does oxygen? Well, how does air rather and and greenhouse gases? How does it leave a tree? So it goes through uh, the sides of the trees. Um, as it goes further up the tree, it gets. Um, the concentrations are further reduced and so the highest there's more concentration higher concentrations of these greenhouse gases emitted closer to the base of the tree they 
slowly penetrate through the tree and then eventually make its way out, kind of how a fart does uh, in your own body. Um, it's a very slow release. Now, uh, with again, with a human fart, you know when someone's let one go, don't you? Uh, you can smell it. How, um, how do you know when a tree has farted? How are, you, how are you telling which trees have farted and who's the culprit, whoever smelt it dealt with? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, there's, no, there's no smells um, because the, the, the reason why you hear fart smell is a combination. It's not just the same gases. You have other things happening within your own body. But um, here for standing dead trees, um, it's just CO2 and methane and then small variants of nitrous oxide, which is the third greenhouse gas. Um, but one way that uh, one way that researchers uh, look at how high the concentrations of methane are inside the trees is they'll they'll um, take a tree core and after they take the tree core out, you can light the end of the tree core with a lighter. And if there's a, a big flame, that means that there's a, the very high concentrations inside the tree. And this happens because methane is super flammable. Ah, so it's, uh, again, we see this in films sometimes when people try and light their own farts. Definitely don't do that. Yes, you, yes, because it's the it, methane. <laughs> it's, the, it's the methane. Um, but you, scientists, <laughs> under controlled conditions, you have tried to set alight tree farts to see what's happening. Yes. Yes. Some people do. It's just for show, just kind of to see how much of the methane isn't in, actually inside the tree. Now, how are they affecting the environment? We hear a lot about uh, cattle, how cattle, cow farts and burps uh, affect the environment. How big a player are tree farts in global warming? Um, so this occurs, so I guess... I mentioned standing dead trees are emitting greenhouse gases, but actually live trees do this as well. Um, but this is a little bit more complicated because um, in areas that aren't constantly saturated, there aren't wetlands. Um, this is very small dosages uh, that are being emitted. But when you, when you have a lot of canopy or a lot of leaves um, in a live tree, some of that CO2 that's being emitted or some of that methane that's being emitted through the tree stem um, is taken up by the by the leaves through photosynthesis. And so um, overall, globally, it's probably a very small percentage. Um, but this is just letting people know that this is a possibility too. Like standing dead trees are definitely still emitting greenhouse gases um, but unlike the live trees they don't have the leaves uh, to take up some of that co2 or carbon dioxide or methane um, to help offset some of the emissions how much of it is is humans fault melinda with uh, cattle farts and you know, we're being told that perhaps if we were to eat less meat there would be less of them around so less cow farts how much of tree farts and the fact that they are harming the environment a little bit how much is that a human problem i mean i think in the grand scheme of things um it's not necessarily a huge problem because it's a, it's a small percentage um globally but the reason why we're seeing so many standing dead trees um in the u.s or across the southeastern u.s in freshwater forested wetlands is because of in increasing flooding events and saltwater intrusion. And some of that saltwater intrusion is caused by humans, like human interference of the landscape. Amazing. Uh, well, I've had a, a fantastic time uh, crossing the Atlantic Ocean with all this technology involved, satellites at play, broadband, all of that, so we can talk about tree farts. It's been an absolute joy, Melinda. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. That is it for this week's Best of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back to normal next week answering your questions. If there's something you want answered on the show, leave it as a review for us over on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Google, on Spotify and on the free Fun Kids app. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. You can listen to us all around the country on your DAB Digital Radio and over at funkidslive.com. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!